Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Provcast. My name is Court and I will be your host uh, as we discuss some of the uh, topics we've been working through in First Peter, our sermon series at Providence Community Church. Uh, first of all, I just want to say uh, I'm so glad to be back into the United States of America and to be here with uh, my whole family together, uh, especially our daughter who we uh, were able to finally bring home and finalize her adoption uh, from Kyrgyzstan. And so we're glad to all be back. And I want to say thank you to all of those of you who have been listening in as I've been doing podcasts from there and uh, from Bishkek. And, and also for those of you who have been praying and encouraging us, we're just so glad that you uh, you guys have been so faithful and uh, it's been really encouraging to walk through this together. So thanks so much. And I am here uh, for this week's edition with Eric Ripley. And, Hello. And he is uh, not, it's not his first time on the Profcast. So he's He's one of our regular visitors, and he also shares the pulpit with me at Providence. And so I thought it would be good for us to get together and talk a little bit about First Peter since uh, we've been working through that sermon series together for the better part of the fall. About this time last year, we, we went on a prayer and planning retreat mm-hmm. to prepare for 2020, which I think we, we had an idea would be um, a milestone year. There would be a lot of difficulty, particularly in the, it would be an election season, so we had already kind of... Uh, I guess foreseen that in 2016, and so we were praying and asking the Lord, how could we set up a sermon series, especially in the fall, that would be helpful? Um, and then 2020 turned out to be way more than any of us could have bargained for. And so I just want to get yeah. your your perspective, uh, not just with the election, but with our culture, with a lot of things that have gone on this year. You know, how have you experienced walking through First Peter, both both uh, preaching it, and then we have the, I think, the real gift of not only preaching it, but then being able to uh, sit underneath teaching yeah. uh, also uh, through the book. How have you experienced it? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's been awesome. I think despite the hardship of 2020 in general with everything that's happened, uh, I think that it has only solidified the need for books like First Peter yeah. that speak into our cultural moment in so many ways because the the world, you know, history repeats itself. And so... This is something that was relevant when Peter wrote it, and it's relevant for us now. Uh, and it's cool just to see all the unique ways it is relevant for us in this time as we consider what uh, maybe more hardships and sufferings and difficulties we might face as Christians in the future. And, and that, honestly, our brothers and sisters around the world have been experiencing uh, forever. And so uh, it's definitely a unique moment, I think, for us to look into the text and let it read us and read our culture and, and help us figure out how to uh, look to Jesus and act in such a way that is consistent with the gospel and honors the Lord. So, yeah, you know, I I heard this quote from Al Mohler. He says, you know, history doesn't always repeat itself, but history always rhymes. Yeah, and uh, that's good. And I thought, yeah, that's a really great way of looking at it. You know, it's First Peter is written in this particular time, uh, obviously under Roman occupation. It's the it's the very birth of the church. So there's. A lot of false teaching going around and it's in its infancy phase like like anything it's very vulnerable and and peter's writing to these very vulnerable people who've been exiled and and speaking to them as exiles both in their physical experience and also their spiritual identity as christians mm-hmm. and so you know whenever we decided to to ta- try to tackle this book and and really exposit what god's word says in in this letter from peter we we saw a lot of those those really uh, heavy themes like suffering and a pursuit of holiness in the face of hardship and trial yeah. um, 
judgment and salvation, you know, that are kind of juxtaposed constantly throughout the book. And we thought, man, this would be really good and really helpful. And then obviously there's just some particulars in there about government, about how, how do you, how do you engage with government, um, that we thought, man, this will be really helpful. And, and -hmm. I think that it has been, I think it's been, uh, maybe even more helpful than we could have ever imagined. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it definitely speaks to, uh, like I said, just, just some of the particular things with politics and, and everything that, that's going on that's become uh, really heightened uh, the past several years. And, and so Peter addresses those things uh, once again in a unique way that, that I think uh, for me personally, I know for sure kind of unfolding some of these things and hearing some of these things from the pulpit and just kind of diving further in the book has been helpful to say, okay, as a Christian, why do I think this way? How do I think this way? And it kind of helps me shape how I lead my family through the process. Yeah, and I'm, I'm uh, this will be a little teaser for a future episode, but I'm yeah. hoping to, to do an episode talking about, you know, we are in a time where it feels like everything's political. Like, yep. it's hard to, like, it's hard to get away from. Uh, growing up, I didn't feel like it was this way. You know, I felt like it was, it was a lot easier to be removed from, uh, you know, what was going on with Bill Clinton and his his impeachment yeah. as a as a young person, and I thought of that and thought, well, maybe maybe because you were you were younger and therefore you it it was always this vitriolic, but I I don't I don't think it was that it was always as intense as it is right now. I think politics has always been raging on and doing its thing, but it's at the fore in a unique way right now where everything's turned to political. You know, something like mask wearing can become political, and mm-hmm. you know some you know all of these everything gets politicized. But I'd love to do an episode just talking about. How it's not everything's not political. Everything's theological. Yeah, and that's why everything seems political because yep. politics ultimately, whether anyone likes it or not, they're about ideas, and these ideas have deep roots, and yes. those deep roots always end up coming back to what our theological positions are, whether we think we hold them or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I'd like to I'd like to do an episode on that. I think we will in the future because I think First Peter is is a way that Peter's driving down to some theological truths that should shape us in the way that we view what's going on in our political realm or really just the world itself. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about a few tough texts. You know, one thing we, one thing we said in last November, whenever we were writing on a whiteboard, uh, we knew that there were going to be some tough texts in first Peter that it's like, well, we're not going to probably, when we go preach through a book thematically, like we do with a number of verses in one sermon, you're probably not going to be able to tackle some of these tough texts in that one sermon. Yeah. And yet we don't, we want to be faithful. You know, we don't want to just ignore them. And, and I've been really antsy about this because I felt like (laughs) in the last few weeks I've been preaching or at least the ones we're going to address right now. It's like, boom, 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 right after one and right after another. You got all of them. Yep. (laughs) And so I wanted to spend some time talking about those and then really maybe, maybe going back to talking about what, what's deeper than just trying to explain what Peter's really getting at here. Yeah. Um, so here's what, what I'd like to do is just kind of maybe read this, particularly this one this one text out of 1 Peter 3 that I, I preached on a couple weeks ago, and then ask you, hey, what's going on here? What the heck is he saying? And then maybe what's undergirding that. Yeah. So this one's 1 Peter 3, and I'm just going to read verses 18 through 22. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, who were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Okay, so this is the first one, and it really covers two, I guess, trouble texts or troubling texts for the evangelical Christian. And (laughs) the first one is, what in the world is Peter talking about saying that Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prisons because they did not formerly obey? You know, what's going on there? Yeah, so, um, you know, it's it's clear, you know, that we're not going to get a clear answer from this probably. I mean, even <laughs> guys like Martin Luther just were baffled at that text. So there's no real explanation for it, what it could mean. Uh, yeah. and so you could definitely have opinions, and, and I have my opinions, but in general there's three main kind of uh, ways it's interpreted. And, and the first way is that basically what this is talking about is in the days of Noah, Christ's spirit was preaching through the acts of Noah and building the ark and proclaiming the coming rain uh, and flood. Uh, and that Christ uh, in his spirit was doing that. And really you take that from first Peter chapter one, I'm going to quote, but don't hold me because I don't have it in front of me. It's not exact, but uh, it basically says, you know, considering this salvation, the salvation Peter was talking about the prophets who searched and inquired carefully about the uh, about the salvation, about the spirit and times that Christ, the spirit of Christ was indicating uh, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so as an example of Peter drawing Christ's spirit speaking through prophets and people of old. And so that's kind of the first interpretation. The second is that uh, Christ basically when he died between that time and the resurrection, those few days there that he went uh, into Hades or whatever you want to call it and preached to all the saints of all that didn't get to really hear the gospel, and then he liberated them in justice. And then the the third way, uh, that sorry, that one also plays off of Ephesians uh, four eight and nine, which talks about him descending and, and all of those things and leading the captives. Uh, and then the third main way is basically um, Christ claiming victory over the principalities and basically the evil angels, demons, right, that had fallen, and kind of him taking on dominion. That You get that from verse 22 in the same text. Um, so basically in all of these, you know, you got some different ones, and kind of the most popular kind of talked about one is Christ going to preach to dead people because it's just amazing to think about yeah. what that would look like, I guess. Uh, and so, and so for me personally, I mean, like I said, I don't think we'll get like a clear indication of what that is. I kind of favor the first one, but, um, it's just open-ended. You know, there's, there's many people that are way smarter than me and have way more degrees than me. Cause I have zero, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that would, that would say maybe differently, but, um, it's interesting to see this. I don't think that it's Christ preaching to dead people. Cause I think if you look at Abraham, right, he, he was considered saved. It was accounted to him as righteousness because he had faith in God. And so, however God works that out, I trust Him. Uh, but yeah, and so I think that's that's kind of what Peter is indicating here. But I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Yeah, it's tough. It's like, um, well, the the issue with the preaching to dead people also is in Jesus' own words when he's doing uh, when he's telling his disciples the parable of Lazarus or Lazarus and the rich man, mm-hmm. and he talks about how the you know the rich man in his life was. Um, evil and and mistreated Lazarus the poor or the poor man, yep. and that uh, whereas Lazarus the poor man was brought into Abraham's bosom, you know, to be to be near unto unto God, that the the rich man was in Hades, and that there was a great chasm between the two. And and Christ actually says, you know, when when the when the rich man is saying, "Tell Lazarus to come down here and put cold water on my tongue because I'm I'm tormented," uh, he says, "There's a great chasm between the two, and we're ne- that, that you're not going to be able to go back and forth." Yeah, which is this really fundamental Christian doctrine that there's n- there's no second chance doctrine in the Bible. You mm-hmm. know, there's not like this 
And so the, the idea of Christ going to preach to uh, the captives the gospel so that they might be saved is kind of a second chance. Now, I know there's nuance to that because some might think that uh, there was, this was a, a kind of holding pattern for some of the Old Testament saints and they had to hear the preached word of Christ and salvation in order to, to finally be with him. And um, It's interesting. I mean, the idea of Christ descending into hell is, is not new. Yeah, you know, this is in the the Nicene Creed. It's a uh, mm-hmm. it's as old as the early church councils talking about Christ descending, and and there's a lot of uh, commentary around this. And and uh, you're right in saying no one's really landed on <laughs> on where they stand on it. But it's a really interesting thought. Um, I tend to think of it as the victory over the the victory over the spirits and uh, okay. Christ's pro- proclamation of victory. And I say that only because at the end of that text he says. You know, Christ has gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God. Who's he with? He's with angels. He's with authorities. He's with powers. Yep. Yep. And they, they've all been subjected unto him. So it's like all of the, even the rebellious ones. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's just a lean, but it's it's a, it's a really interesting, you know, that Peter jumps into this. Yeah. In the middle of him talking about suffering and, and hardship, you know, it's like, man, talk about, you know, uh, chasing a rabbit trail. But you also think like it's a, uh, Peter constantly is using Old Testament references. Yes, so he is. Particularly, he's talking about Noah, which brings me to my second question to you, which is, you know, baptism. You know, the particularly, I think, what for the Protestant is going to be, and well, I guess not just the Protestant, but for t- particularly um, for the Protestant that be- believes in a believer's baptism. And yeah, um, this idea that baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, that line. Mm-hmm. Baptism saves you. Yeah. Um, what, what do you make of it? Well, I think uh, that's a good question. Um, so I'll give you just a kind of my you know thoughts on baptism in general. I don't think the act of baptism saves you. I think that the thief on the cross would be an example, right? Or he's already dying and he's going to be with Jesus in paradise, right? Um, so I don't think if, if you miss the baptism slot uh, on that following Sunday and you died before that you're not saved. Um, I do think, though, it is a, a great gift and, and kind of tradition and ordinance that Christ has given to us uh, that represents our salvation. Um, and I think in the act of baptism, there's many cool spiritual things that happen. Um, and so I don't think, uh, yeah, so that there's, there's many things there. But I think the reason why Peter uses this language has to do everything with the ark is kind of flowing from the same thought if you look at the text. And so just as the waters, you know, covered the face of the earth, right? And there was eight people that were saved by God's grace inside of the ark, which represents Christ, us being saved in Christ. Uh, I think baptism is is a clear picture of what happens in our salvation, the purification that we are given by the blood of Jesus and just kind of represents us being saved just as Noah and his family was saved in the ark. Uh, but I don't think, as clear as that statement is, that it's saying that's what saves us. I think the the New Testament narrative would clearly, uh, I think, rebuke that thought. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, we have our our Lutheran brothers and yeah. and uh, you know other denominations, even the Catholic Church, that has a different view of baptism in that it, it's uh, the efficacy of salvation mm-hmm. being uh, you know sealed in baptism is a, is an important thing and. Uh, and, and uniquely important to them as a means of grace. And I, one thing I want to make mention of, and I don't know if you've put much thought into this, but I, I do think that in some ways the way that we've uh, treated baptism in the church as it's almost like a whipped cream on your Sunday. Yeah. And, and be, because we don't give it the importance that actually it holds in the scriptures. And yep. 
And there's a, there's an effect to that, I think. You know, like when we do baptism Sundays at Providence, kind of like, ah, well, never been baptized. You know, maybe I'll do that. It's, but it mm-hmm. doesn't seem to me that that's that's the New Testament example. You know, like that Jesus says, go and make disciples, and how baptizing them. Yeah. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is like essential to the Great Commission. And then also, Peter would follow that up in Acts two by saying, repent mm-hmm. and be baptized every one of you. Save yep. yourself from this crooked generation. You know, it's what he says. Yeah. And then you follow that up with the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's basically teleported out into the desert by the spirit. Yeah. An Ethiopian eunuch comes up on his chariot. I mean, you know the story. It's like all of a sudden he is re- he's reading the prophets, doesn't know what they mean. Philip explains to him the suffering servant that is Christ. He comes to the knowledge of Christ and desires to repent. And boom, there's a puddle in the desert. Yep. And all of those, all of those scriptures I just mentioned underscore to me just how important baptism is. And I guess my question that I want to ask you is, do you think that we've undervalued it and maybe, maybe we've sideshowed it in the church a little bit? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, and on the offset, I got to tell you, I've been baptized twice, so I have to confess that. But there you go. Uh, so Each that's time a, one way next. of <laughs> one way of devaluing it there. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think that we've definitely undervalued it in many ways. I think that. Uh, you mentioned the text in Acts 2 uh, of, you know, uh, Peter preaching the gospel and, and the people there listening, responding, like, what shall we do? And, and it was to repent and be baptized, every single one of you, right? Uh, so it's a command. It's, it's, it's a command just like repentance is a command commandment, right? And so it, it's not to be taken lightly. I, th- I think we also undervalue the spiritual, uh, you know, implications of what happens at baptism. And so, you know, I think sometimes we have to be careful to say, it's oh, it's just a monumental thing. Uh, as to separate it from true spiritual growth, I think that it also provides. And so um, I, I think if you didn't value your baptism the first time it happened, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily argue that you need to redo it to make it more important this time. Yeah. Uh, but but I do think understanding those implications more in the scriptures and, and uh, you know, really celebrating it and, and taking it seriously in such a way uh, like we should with communion, I think is another great example, which we don't have to get into that. Uh, we're not on that subject, but yeah, I definitely think we undervalue it and need to consider how, as a church, we could uh, better do that and teach that, you know, as to make it more of a, something valuable. Yeah, and, and maybe that there's more that's going on in the baptism event yes. than what we are teaching or what we're believing. And, mm-hmm. and I think... For me, when I when you read this from from Peter, it's like it's a reminder of that. Yeah. Uh, him, him underscoring salvation and baptism being connected. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we we know that we're saved by Christ alone. This is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Luther, you know, really preserved this for us in the Reformation. So it's not something that we want to give up lightly as Protestants, and I think that's good. Yeah. But but. I think if you go back and even read Luther and, and some, what he what he thought about baptism, I think that we've definitely abandoned baptism as something uniquely commanded by Jesus and uh, and set up by Christ as essential to yeah. what it means to be a disciple. And um, and it's not just a it's not just a cool Sunday event, you know. It's yeah. like this is it's transcendent. It's 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 deep and meaningful and spiritual, and something's yes. happening in that. Yeah. Um, that that mirrors the circumcision of the Old Testament, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think like, um, yeah, uh, like you said, I, I think it's important that we we emphasize that and, and focus on that. I think there's a difference between someone like the thief on the cross who obviously had no chance of being baptized genuinely right and someone who puts it off for years because it's not valued or something that just kind of seems weird and right. archaic. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's important to say too. You know, it's not, and I think that that's been maybe the pushback on on 
on from some on baptism. It's like, well, it's not the main thing. The main thing is Christ. It's like, okay, but you know, you don't have to uh, make enemies out of that which is doesn't have to be enemies. And that which Christ <laughs> commanded for us to do, right? Right, so. <laughs> of course. Okay, so then the the next one in the last text that I kind of wanted to get into before we talk about the what what themes kind of weave are woven through all three of these is yeah the one that came from Sunday, which is uh, Peter says it is time now. For judgment to begin at the household of God. Yeah. And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the, the unrighteous and the sinner? And and mm-hmm. again, these seem just kind of, you know, pressed into the text. It's like, man, what, where are we at here? You know, like, and, and yeah. so it makes it a little bit difficult whenever you're kind of preaching through it. But but what do you make of that? Yeah. So um, for, for me, when I, I, you know, I try to think through, well, there's some definitions here you have to come up with, like what's he mean by judgment, those kind of things. Now, this text is clearly tied into verse 16, which talks about that we should suffer with Christ so that we could glory, right, in, in that name. And then he says, for judgment begins in the household of God. So because, uh, so basically do do this suffering so you can glorify in his name because judgment begins in the household of God. And so uh, my kind of overarching, and this kind of going to get into the theme of First Peter, unfortunately, because I, I think this is like a crescendo text to what Peter's been talking about the past four chapters. And I think this judgment particularly talks about the believer's suffering from when Christ came the first time to when Christ returns at the end of all things, and he seals the final judgment on the, the non-believers. And so I kind of look at it this way. This uh, judgment beginning at the household of God is this purification judgment of our suffering that we experience as believers, uh, as we obey and walk and follow as disciples of Jesus Christ. And that suffering is the judgment. It's a judgment now. It's a judgment that we are despised, you know, in this earth that we will always be hated because it hated Christ. But that's going to end in a final judgment that says clean, right? It's a final judgment that says uh, saved, forgiven in Christ, just like Noah was in the ark. Um, and then I think after that, right, comes the judgment, the final judgment of those who did not obey the gospel, which is in the context of this verse. And so I look at that judgment as um, what Peter had been talking about, right? He talks about judgment in chapter 1 uh, and so on. And so, and, and suffering is a clear theme throughout this entire uh, book that as believers we will suffer, and it focuses on different aspects different ways to handle it, but ultimately it's reality for us. We will be exiles. We will be suffering this whole time. And so when he says the time is begun now, right, uh, it begins at the household of God, That's, I believe that's what that's talking about. And I think that, like I said, um, that it's not an eternal judgment in that way, right, in the sense of our suffering that will end one day, uh, but not for those who didn't obey the gospel. Yeah, I read, I read a, a biblical theology book, and I, it's sk- skipping my mind right now. Who, uh, who was the author of the book? And when I say I read it, I don't mean that I just read it from cover to cover. You know, those are those are hefty books. But, um, but re- reading on it or reading in it, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that this guy was posing, this uh, scholar, was that one lens through which you can look at all of the scriptures is through the lens of judgment and redemption, or judgment and salvation. Yeah. Uh, all the way from Genesis through to Revelation, you know, you see uh, in Genesis there's the the command that's given by God to not eat of the fruit of this tree, and the judgment that's given down are in Genesis three are the curses that now we live under the judgment of God and the effects of God. You fast forward, and and Paul seems to take this not as a doctrine, but mm-hmm. as a very fundamental doctrine to the gospel when he says that the wrath of God abides on us. 
or the yeah. judgment of God abides on all of humanity because of the original sin, and it then and the original sin had created much injustice in the world. You know, if you think of the idea of judgment, you know, what does a judge do? A judge renders a verdict or renders judgment on this on the sinful or the immoral or the one who or the wrongdoer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Old Testament theology, but if you just go down and take a civics class, that's still today in the United States government. That's what a judge does. They render verdicts on the wrongdoers, and they kind of mm-hmm. sift through what's what's right and wrong, and they do that on the basis of a moral code that we've developed, or a, a code of law. And the Mosaic law that was given by God was a holy revelation, and it was the revelation on showing all of the children of Israel and anyone who would read into it that we were all abiding under the judgment of a righteous God until Christ. And 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 we needed a savior. We needed redemption. And when I read through 1 Peter, it seems to me that he's kind of he's going back and forth through these uh often talking about a the end of all things is near, so there's a final judgment that's coming. Mm-hmm. Um but that for the church there's redemption, there's salvation, the hope of glory. There's a living stone that is now the chief cornerstone of the foundation of this new spiritual house that God's building and that even though we know that we were once living under the wrath of God that now we've been freed by the blood of Christ and we can pursue holiness even as he is holy. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it seems like judgment, salvation, human responsibility, these all kind of flow through this. When you think of Christ going down and proclaiming to the spirits that are in prison, yeah. uh, what is he pro- proclaiming? It's one On one end, it's liberty. On another end, when you read through here in First Peter, it's judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, baptism saves you. Saves you from what? From judgment. What's the salvation, the ark, who is Christ? You know, um, judgment begins at the household of God. What do we mean? It means that Christians should live under this reality that that judgment is not only right, but it's good. Yeah. And that the rest of the story is that we have a merciful God. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not like that just started in Matthew with the Gospels. This is God's character from, you know, Moses being hidden in the cleft of the rock. And he says, "Let, let me see your glory. And what happens? The glory of God passes by Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Mm-hmm. You know, so he goes through, he starts with all of the merciful attributes of God, and then what does he end with, though? Visiting the iniquity upon the fathers of the third and the fourth generation, judgment. Yeah. And that those two things are true, and, you know, holding those things in tension is unique to the Christian worldview, but it's the only way to make sense of the world we live in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's... that's um very good points, and yeah, it's, it's clear to see that throughout First Peter, you know, the, those kind of themes, because there's many calls to, to you know, how how we live in light of this judgment, right, and in light of the mercy of God. And so, you know, you look at, you know, chapter 1, where he talks about, you know, if you call upon him as judge, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, like conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Uh, and that kind of that theme continues uh, to live holy in a righteous life, and and uh, you know I think that it's it's can be a temptation for us to ignore the judgment side of God, and, and then we get this soft Jesus who wouldn't judge anyone, right? But that that's just not the theme of the Bible, uh, and there is definite judgment that even we have with one another, uh, according to each one's deeds as well. That flows from that. But yeah, I saw on on Twitter just today. Uh, which, you know, why am I on there? Just successful, <laughs> right? But I saw uh, this r- recent uh, young man who was elected to the United States Congress had been getting slandered online because he had admitted, I guess in the last couple of years, that he had shared the gospel and tried to convert someone from Islam and, and uh, Judaism. And it mm-hmm. was like, for whatever reason, uh, this was 
seen as like anathema. How in the world? Why? Yeah. Why would you do that? What an evil person. And I saw one tweet from a very prominent, you know, uh, Twitter blue check mark that was like, um, you know, there's a way to follow Jesus uh, and not have to proselytize and and look to change everybody else's mind and, and shame them in their own beliefs. And, hmm. and then at the bottom, there was this one line that really got to me. And it's, it, it kind of, it, uh, it sums up the, maybe the zeitgeist in the, you know, yeah. the spirit of the age. It said, um, Jesus wouldn't do that. Hmm. Or, or, or even Jesus wouldn't act this way. And, you know, you go down and I was reading through the comments and the comment section and probably, you know, 200 of them at least are, yeah, affirming, affirming, affirming. And then you just see this one, that quotes the Great Commission and says, "Not sure Jesus would agree with you." <laughs> and, and I love I, it, and, and it's it's interesting because it's it's this idea that to to bring the the hope of mercy in a in a world that is obviously headed for judgment, yeah, is uh, evil. Why would you do such a thing? Why why would you want to change anyone's mind? Yeah, uh, about this, and yeah, and and I I find that to be like staggering, like. That we've gotten to this place in our in our conversation that it's like that yeah. a Christian wouldn't act like a Christian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's such a good point to bring up because uh, you know I, I think that it's clear the pressure on Christians in this way is is mounting in our society, and, and it's nothing new. I mean, Peter addresses this over and over again, but uh, it is mounting on us, and you know we have to decide now, you know, what we believe about those things, and so we obviously believe love goes beyond someone's feelings or how the culture views it right. It goes how God views it, and, and God holds out in love. Right now, today is the day of salvation, holds out mercy and love in place of judgment and wrath. And that's offered to all. And therefore, as Paul says, right, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And so there is a persuasion in us that just doesn't want to simply change someone's mind because we want to be right, but it wants to hold out that love. And it's willing uh, to lose Twitter clout, willing to lose your life in order to hold that out because we already have that, right? Well, it's interesting, though, because I do think that our our culture is ripe to hear the gospel, mm-hmm. even though the, the true gospel's in some ways been grotesque and it's it's becoming more anathema than ever. But, yeah. but the reason I say that is because this year we've experienced these massive outcries for justice, mm-hmm. these massive outcries where there has been... Uh, and honestly, with the, the movement of like social justice movements, it's highlighting these uh, areas of society where they see great inequality and mm-hmm. um, and then demanding something be done about it and also demanding that there's a confession, mm-hmm. that there's a, you know, own, own this. And, and there, there you, you kind of see this where there's like, like liturgical forms kind of cre- creeping throughout the country where people... And, and what it lets me see, or at least what I see with my Christian worldview uh, eyes on, is this deep-seated longing for justice. Mm-hmm. And we can't get away from judgment, yeah. <laughs> even as, as hard as we have, you know, as hard as we've tried for the last however many years, tried to get away from this idea of, like, we want to live in a judgment-free society. We're more judgmental than we've ever been. Yeah. Um, and, it, and what I see is, it for a long time, it's been... And, and from the church, it's like, what happens when you live in a culture of no judgment and only mercy? And we've been afraid of that. And, and so there, therefore, the church has responded. This is where you see uh, Billy Graham crusades were, were powerful. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, c- coming back to saying, no, look, we have to stand up for things that are right. Sin is still sin. And, yeah. But now what I'm seeing when I look at the, the cultural landscape is twofold. Not only what happens when you live in a world with no 
judgment or no justice. Mm-hmm. But what happens when you live in a world that's all judgment and no mercy? Yeah. Which is kind of what I see now. It's like there's there's a whole generation of young people who are longing for justice, but they have no they have no meta narrative of Christ. Yeah. And so they're looking for ways to absolve their own guilt. Yeah. Or the guilt of or demanding that others uh, yeah. admit their own complicity and guilt, but there's no there's no atonement. Yeah. And I think, you know, despite whatever hardships may come, you know, from this cultural moment, uh, I, I think that as the Church of Christ, we need to view this as a beautiful gift because, you know, like what you're mentioning right now, it's like it has never been more clear to me that the gospel is like the perfect key to unlock the door, right? I mean, it just, you can see this, you know, it's like you can see the, the need for the gospel so clearly. Uh, I think for us that, that should be a gift to say, you know, it's uh, however challenging and, and awkward and, and different from, you know, the 80s and 90s to now. You know, it is, uh, like you said, you know, the gospel meets this. It meets this justice and it meets this mercy in such a unique way. Uh, and it doesn't mean the whole world's going to believe it, obviously, but it does mean it's the true answer to what we see going on. You know, this this cry for justice, this cry for mercy. But I, I would agree. I, it doesn't seem like we live in a very merciful society. Uh, if you disagree with someone, you, you're evil, right? <laughs> there's, there's no mercy at all in that, even for a conversation, yeah. uh, let alone for action. Well, it's interesting. You know, Philip Yancey wrote a book called uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, and this was, I think, the early, maybe it was late 2000s, maybe it was early 2000s. But he was talking about how, you know, um, grace was the last untainted word of the English language in the church culture. You know, that we had already allowed love to be so tainted where you can love anything, but grace was this, the final word that maybe we could maintain. And in his uh-huh. case, was that we live in a really graceless age. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that was true to an extent, but I also think that, you know, the church was rebutting that by saying, no, 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 we're, we're you know, Bonhoeffer, obviously, uh, much further back in the in the World War II era was trying to say, no, we live in such a greasy grace age. We live in such a, mm-hmm. a lack of understanding of holiness and God's justice. And, you yeah. know, um, this is would even be like uh, what J.B. Smalls, your God is too small. Mm-hmm. You know, these kind of pastors were coming out and saying, no, it's not, it's not that we live in a graceless age. It's that we have uh, cheapened grace. Yeah. And I would say now more than ever, maybe Philip Yancey's right in that we, we do live in a graceless age because people are coming to, the chickens are coming home to roost that you can't live in a, in a world without justice. Yeah. You can't live in a, a world without a moral, uh, a moral compass. But the problem is because we've abandoned the foundation, which is Christ, those, those moral judgments are being uh, shouted from the mountaintops, but they don't have any grounding anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then they also don't have any way to absolve them. It's like, okay, yeah. everybody's messed up. And you start looking around and everybody can keep pointing. It's interesting because... A lot of these ide- ideologies like identity politics and yeah. and intersectionality, they, they break up people into groups and then, you know, basically pointing at one another and depending upon how bad your group is or how good, how much your group has been yeah. oppressed. The problem is there's so much guilt to go around. And as a Christian, you're standing on the outside saying, oh my gosh, it's getting close to recognizing Romans 3.23. Yeah. It's getting close to recognizing all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Mm-hmm. But because there's no... You know the the narrative of Christ is 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 nowhere to be found. It's like everybody's arguing in the dark. Yeah, and and I think that we are ripe. You're right. Like we have to see this as okay. That this time is is ripe to truly preach the gospel. And that, that that brings me to my my next question, which is, you know, Peter seems to have sprinkled in things like there's the the living and abiding word of God. You know, the flower fails, 
and the, the grass fades, mm-hmm. but the word of the Lord abides forever. Yeah. And so what do you see in Peter's admonition, the role of preaching the gospel and bringing the abiding word, both the, the word of the gospel preached and the living word that is Christ into this culture? What do you see in relation to this like idea of judgment and, and salvation? Yeah, you know, I think that, um, you know, I think one, it's clear, you know, you know, Peter talks about uh, in here, like, you know, being prepared to give an account, right, for the joy that's in us. Uh, and so I think for, for every believer in a, in a real way, I, I think, you know, understanding the gospel, uh, what that's done for us personally, uh, and understanding God's word, which which you mentioned, never never fades away, right? It's, it's going to be relevant and more relevant and more relevant until he returns, right? Uh, with everything. And so I think that, you know, knowing judgment, knowing these truths, knowing the final judgment that's coming, uh, I, I think that should be, and I think what Peter is getting at is encouragement for us to hold up the word in a clear way, to preach the gospel uh, in all aspects in our society uh, as best we can, right? Uh, and to not be afraid of maybe the temporary purifying judgment that comes with that in our society and, and may get more intense, may not, depending on what the Lord does, what seems good to him. Uh, but understanding that us taking that judgment is is a light thing compared to the final judgment that may come. And, and that should be encouraging because, you know, right now, you know, like you mentioned, when it comes to the word, right, people in society are, are, are really struggling, you know, to find justice and to talk about these things. But if you talk to everyone on how they get to, well, how do you know that's justice, right? Like, how do you know that's a good thing, right, that you're fighting for? Because in in one way, you want the earth to get better, right? And you don't want us to destroy it with all of our fumes and everything going on. And in another way, you're fine with, with, with murder, right? And so, you know, it's kind of looking at those things and saying, okay, where are you getting your justice? Where are you getting your ideas of what justice truly is? And that falls obviously, I think for us, right, on the word of God. That is, God is what decides justice. You don't decide justice because you and I are going to have a different opinion on justice and probably do in many things, but God decides justice. And so uh, I think standing firm on the word, understanding the gospel, being able to share that clearly without fear, knowing the fear of the Lord and the judgment of the Lord, I think these are some practical ways in which we can stand on the word of God, hold the word of God, love the word of God, and by God's grace, uh, show people, you know, where to find true justice and mercy in this time. And that's really good. I think, you know, when you're, when you're saying, when you were saying, where, where do you find your, your version of justice? I couldn't help but picture a, a group of people who had, you know, been out at sea and the ship is, you know, anchored to the bottom and mm-hmm. they jump out to swim and they're all swimming together, and they, but they're tethered into the to the ship, right? So they're all tied yeah. to the ship, and then they just decide to untether themselves mm-hmm. and uh, and swim around and and uh, and basically begin to realize that now because they've untethered themselves, now where's our hope of finding our point of origin again? Yeah, and I feel I feel like our culture's kind of lost at sea morally because yep. we untethered ourselves from mm-hmm. uh, from the truth about who God is, and and in particular um, from the Word of God. And so I think that's that's why we find ourselves in such a moral quandary because yeah. you know you have these two sides that are uh, you know angrily yelling back at one another mm-hmm. and uh, and it seems like the rhetoric just keeps getting kicked up to to eleven but it, but in reality once again I don't think it's all political I think it's all theological yeah and so it's uh, 
Peter is a, is a Peter's epistle, first epistle is timely for this, mm-hmm. um, because he's he's just pointing out all of these uh, all of these things, and yep. and I, I have found it to be really refreshing. Um, okay, last thing I'll do, and then and then we'll be done is two two takeaways like practical application. If you can just think of them right off the top of your head, you take two, I'll take two. What what should we do? You know, if if if, if for everybody who's listening, they've been listening through the sermons through First Peter, and we've talked about them. You know, how, how should it change the way we live? What what are two things that we should take yeah. away from it? Yeah, I appreciate it letting me go first. That way you can't repeat me. So <laughs> this is awesome. I can say whatever I want. Uh, no, I, I think uh, two two major takeaways from First Peter for me. One would be, um, just as we just mentioned, the importance of, of God's Word. I think that's an anchor clearly throughout First Peter. And I think that, um, you know, it's just, I've seen it in myself, I've seen it in the people of our church, uh, and, and there might be exceptions, but I know I'm not one of them, and it's, it's that we just have this propensity to, to fade from it. You know, it's so easy to neglect God's Word, and you could think of any modern excuse you have, nothing's new, these excuses have been used for thousands of years, and, and we probably have the least of them, because you could listen to it while you're doing something if you need to, right? I mean, yeah. we've got so, so many things to help you read God's Word. Uh, and those exist because of our propensity not not to love it. And I think that as this time goes on, as our culture maybe gets weirder and a little bit worse for Christians practically, uh, you're going to get to the point where you have no anchor, and you're going to you're going to find it hard to answer these questions. Like the world's finding it hard to answer this question of why is this happening? Why are we in this context? Why is there everything so political? Why is our world in turmoil? And it's the answer is it's always been that way. And, and we can see this in First Peter and in the rest of the Bible that God has always said this is going to happen this way. You've been called to this, right, is the language of First Peter. Uh, and it's an honor. You know, in the suffering, you just mentioned this past sermon. Uh, I was, loved it. And it just talked about, like, the, the intimacy and the honor that we find in suffering because we are anchored to Christ uh, and understanding we're experiencing that suffering because of that. And so... The point is that if we keep the whole the, the the word of God and we keep it dear, and I don't care how slow you're going through it, you know whatever you need to do. The point is just eat on the word, continually feed on the word, yeah. um, so that way when the storm comes and, and these things happen, you have an anchor that says, "I've already decided I'm going to follow Jesus. I've already decided what's true about eternity, and I'm okay. You know I'm anchored into the Lord." And so that'd be my first takeaway. My second takeaway would be. Um, you know, just just what Peter says here, and I, I think this is a part of last Sunday's sermon too. Which is, is don't be surprised. <laughs> don't be surprised when the fiery tri- trial comes upon you. I, I think so many times as Christians, we're surprised when someone's offended. We're surprised when telling someone about the gospel maybe ruins a relationship or makes us feel awkward. And the reason why we're surprised is because we we've, we've chosen to ignore the clear teaching of the New Testament. And, you know, we've had a great experience the past, you know, several years in our country to where it's been pretty, uh, you know, culturally acceptable to be a Christian and and these kind of things. Uh, And so if we're not careful, we will be surprised. And so just don't be surprised. Suffering is part of our life. And and I don't mean to say that to to bring it, uh, to make light of it. But it's a part of our, it's a part of our lives. It's going to be, Jesus promised, right, that through many I think it was Paul's words, technically, but Jesus is the word, so I could use this. But <laughs> through many trials and tribulations, we'll enter the kingdom, right? Uh, that may be Jesus' words. Now I'm second guessing over and over again. You maybe it'll help me out when it's your turn. But uh, sorry, guys. Um, but yeah, so the the point is that you know it's it's through the suffering, through this judgment, that we're purified to be this spotless bride that Christ is coming back for. 
And so if we look at the end goal of the suffering in our life, we can say with confidence that all of it is meaningful. All of it brings joy and honor, and we get to rejoice and glory in the name of Christ in it. And if we stop thinking about that truth just for a second, we're going to get depressed in our suffering. We're going to, we're going to lose that joy that's promised to us in this. And so we got to stand together as believers and suffer with one another and bear one another's burdens so that we can remind each other, this is not our citizenship, this is not our home, we truly are exiles, and we truly are coming home very, very soon. And in that we rejoice, it's where our hope is. And so maybe to sum that up, it's just hope in the truth of what the Lord's promised. Yeah. Man, it's so good. I um, It's hard to piggyback there. I'm going to say two things that really fall under one category. The first is um, a takeaway that I see from, from Peter's epistle would be, man, really like lean into the church and in, and your identity as a, a member of the body of Christ. You know, uh, what is it? First Peter chapter two, starting in verse nine, you know, telling us that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And that Christ has made us this, uh, by his own blood, he's purchased us to be these people, and that we have both an individual identity as sons and daughters of Christ, but we have a collective identity as the church, and that that's so essential when you suffer to not be uh, picked off by the enemy as a as a lone ranger Christian. You know that's Amen. not that's not the the version of the New Testament that we see. You know it's, and I think that that's a. You know, Western civilization in, in America, in particular, we have a lot of individualism, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with seeing individualism uh, as e- even biblically. You'll see God dealing with individuals right through the stories of mm-hmm. Scripture, and I'm not I'm not trying to negate that. In fact, I think there's a lot of merits of thinking uh, through the individual, but there's no way to read the New Testament apart from recognizing our corporate identity as the church, and that we are interdependent. You know, we're not called to be dependent on one another entirely. We're not called to be independent of one another entirely. We're called to be interdependent. And um, and so I would say that that's an encouragement that I take away, especially like looking forward at, at coming out of First Peter. I don't see our culture becoming more and more uh, open and tolerant of the gospel message or people of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so sticking together, and I don't mean that as like a holy huddle, but being <laughs> encouraging to one another by being present in one another's lives and recognizing that things like church attendance, things like uh, being engaged in uh, gospel community, things like showing up uh, for your brother and sister, well, it's not really a big deal because that I'm not there. It's like, no, not being there is not just about me, mm-hmm. but it's about us. And uh, and seeing that as a, as a bigger deal, that participation in the spirit that we have in the church, I would say that's an encouragement. And and I guess as a subsect of that, it's the just the, the importance that I think Peter's putting on the family unit as well when he talks to husbands and wives um, and, and how we should engage with one another. I, I do think that you see throughout all of the scriptures and in any time that the church has been under you know, duress or had to face up to a culture that's hostile. Um, and, and really beyond that, it's the family unit that uh, carries forward the gospel message. You know, our, our children... Mm-hmm. are growing up now in this culture and there are sermons being preached at them a lot more than just Sunday mornings or you know or Sunday nights yeah. with the student ministry um, there's a lot more sermons than or that's being taught to them than just on Sunday mornings in Providence kids and these narratives are powerful and they're you know strong and they are regular and these narratives do not uh, adhere to 
uh, Christian teaching. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have the fundamentals of who God is and who they are. And in many ways, they are uh, uniquely designed to disrupt that foundational understanding of who they are. Yeah. And so it falls to us, and it falls to, to the church generally, but specifically it falls to husbands and wives. It falls to moms and dads. Um, and so even to the single moms that are listening or the single dads or, or even the singles in the church, I don't think that, that that excludes you. I think that actually it just includes back into the body of Christ how we serve one another. Yeah. Um, for the next generation and for the sake of the next generation, um, that we are imparting the gospel to them. That's a that's a big takeaway mm-hmm. that I've gotten from it. Just looking at our, you know, at Providence on Sunday mornings, you see yeah. all the little kids running around, <laughs> um, and I can't help but think, okay, you know, what's the world going to look like in ten years, fifteen years, twenty years? Yeah. You know, that is not under our our, our uh, purview, but what is under our purview is how we impart the gospel to them. Mm-hmm. And so that would be that would be what my takeaway. Yeah, that's such a good point too, man. You know, with the attack kind of on the family unit in general, right, in our society, like, and how Peter talks about that being such a witness uh, to the gospel, the way we interact as a family. I mean, it's a really good point as far as for us to apply. Man, I really appreciate it. I appreciate our time together today and, and getting to talk through some of this stuff. We went a little longer than usual, but I knew we would because... Sorry. I, I, no, it's good. I wanted to, and, uh, well, I always go longer. I don't know why I say longer than usual. That's true. Anytime I'm talking, we can just blame you here for this one. It really is mostly me, but... Look at my sermons. I'm pretty timely. Um, it is true. You can go back and, and look at the <laughs> look at the sermons. Eric does a better job than me. So um, I want to thank you guys for joining us uh, on this week's edition of the Provcast. Uh, if you want to know more information about uh, Providence, uh, you can visit our website at providencetx.org. Uh, you can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Um, we would love it if you would uh, give us a five-star review on there because it helps us. It helps us to reach more people and uh, but really, the podcast is for you, and so uh, we're so glad that you're listening in. And um, you could always email us at info at providencetx.org if you got a topic that you're like, man, I'd really wish that you would cover this, or you guys would talk about this. We would love to hear from you. Um, and until next time, I want to just say, um, go now and share the love of God that's been shown to you. Love God and love people, and uh, we'll see you next time.